God, I pray that you would work through your word now to make us more like those whose rest is already won. Help us to be more happy in you. Help us to be more holy, especially from the heart. God, I pray that you would work in us in ways that we need, that we are not even aware of right now. God, I pray that you would use your word to raise the dead spiritually and use your word to revive us. Any of us who are spiritually drifting off uh, or in danger of drifting away, God, I pray that you would uh, speak to us and shepherd us through your word uh, gently and also, though, firmly as we need. God, please uh, shepherd each one of your sheep here today in just the way they need through your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I'll ask you to open your Bibles to Acts 19. Acts 19. We're going verse by verse through this book, and we've made it this far to Acts 19, verse 21. And this scripture passage is actually the beginning of a new major section of the book of Acts. It begins the last major section of Acts. When we read Acts 19, verse 21, we are on the home stretch. The book of Acts is structured around several summary statements scattered through the book. You've seen many of them. And these summary statements are like seams that stitch together the major parts of Acts. And the last of these literary seams is found in Acts 19.20, which sums up the main ministry of Paul's third missionary journey by saying, so the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. Now the next verse, Acts 19.21, introduces what's going to happen in the rest of the book of Acts. Look down in your Bibles at verse 21. It says, Now after these events, Paul resolved in the Spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and go to Jerusalem, saying, After I've been there, I must also see Rome. That's what the whole rest of the book is about. Paul, constrained by the Spirit, is going to Jerusalem, passing through Macedonia, in order to go to Rome. But before Paul sets out for Jerusalem, he decides he needs to stay put in Ephesus just a little bit longer. And so he sends some co-workers ahead of him in the meantime. You'll see that in verse 22. Verse 22 says, Having sent into Macedonia two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, he himself stayed in Asia for a while. So Asia was the Roman province where Ephesus was. Now, while Paul was in Ephesus, during this time, he wrote a letter to the church in Corinth, and he told them why he was staying put for a while. 1 Corinthians 16, he wrote, I will stay in Ephesus until Pentecost, and here's why. For a wide door for effective work has opened to me, and there are many adversaries. So I need to stay a little longer because there's a lot of really good ministry left for me to do here and there are a lot of really serious threats to the church still here in Ephesus. 
So what we're going to see today is in the rest of chapter 19, the Holy Spirit tells us about one final event that happened to Paul in Ephesus that shows us who some of those adversaries were and why they were so adversarial towards the gospel and how God preserved his church through it. So verse 23 introduces the conflict. Verse 23, about that time there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. Well, that's the first main point of this passage. The way disturbs the world. And not just a little bit, verse 23 said. Now, Christianity is called the way here, and that fits a broader pattern in Acts. Acts 9-2 described Christians as those belonging to the way. Acts 22-4, Paul reflects on his past life. He said, I persecuted the way. To death. Acts 24:14, Paul said, I worship God according to the way. Earlier in this chapter, chapter 19, verse 9, Jews in Ephesus speak evil of the way. In other verses in Acts, describe the gospel about Christ as the way of salvation, the way of the Lord, the way of God. See, true Christianity is not just a worldview, it is a way. It's not just a set of doctrines to believe. It is a path to walk, a whole course of life based on those doctrines. It's more than accepting certain truths. It's walking in a certain direction, a way, because you're hoping in those truths. Now, actually, it would be better for me to put that more personally. It's walking in a certain direction, and that direction is following after a person. The Lord Jesus Christ. When Jesus came preaching the gospel and he called disciples to to faith and to salvation, he did it by saying, follow me, walk this way, to me, and then behind me. This is biblical Christianity. And it's not just Christianity that is called the way in Scripture. Christ himself is called the way in Scripture. John 14, 6. Well, this is the best news that God has made a way for sinners to walk with Him and to draw near to Him is through the sacrifice of His Son. All who believe are cleansed from all unrighteousness. Now I want you to consider that Christianity especially disturbs the world because it is a way. Privately held religious beliefs that don't really affect the way that you live is not much of a disturbance to anyone. But the progress of the gospel in Ephesus caused no little disturbance because real saving faith means all of life is now spent walking in a new direction. Well, even if that's so, why why would that disturb the world so much? Part of it is because the word calls this faith the way. And that simple title then for our faith is actually implying something rather explosive. That it's the only way. The only way to the only God. The only way to be saved. The only way to walk, if you will, really walk with God. The way. The other reason the way disturbs the world is because it runs contrary to the way the world walks. See, becoming a Christian is not just like finding a different road to drive on. 
It's like starting to drive on the left side of the road instead of the right. It's not just a different way, it's a contrary way, a new way that can cause head-on collisions with the old way, the way the world is going. And when Paul wrote back to these believers in this city in Acts 19, the book of Ephesians, he reminded them that salvation involved walking a new way, a contrary way. He said, you were dead in trespasses and sins before you were saved. In those sins, you once walked following the course of this world. But, but then later in the book, he says, now you've been saved by grace through faith, so you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. You must walk in a manner worthy of your calling. Walk in love as Christ loved us. Walk as children of light. Look carefully how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time, because the days are evil. It's a whole new way. Now in this chapter specifically, we see the way disturb the world, especially because it endangers some things the world prizes. See, down in verse 27, the ringleader of what becomes a citywide riot says, there is danger here. And because of this way, Paul is preaching. So look back up to verse 24. That introduces us to the instigator. Verse 24, a man named Demetrius, a silversmith who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. Okay, don't miss the connection between the language of verse 23 and verse 24. There arose no little disturbance, verse 23, because the way was messing with no little business, verse 24. The silversmith, Demetrius, then tells his fellow tradesmen, this way is starting to threaten our wealth. The big business we have here, see that in verse 25. These he gathered together with the workmen in similar trades and said, Men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. Our prosperity depends on this business. This is the next main point of our passage. The way is a danger to worldly wealth. The way is a danger to worldly wealth. See, Paul was preaching Christ and people were believing. And so it was changing their whole course of life, including the way they spent money. The people in the idol business, the idol making business, they were starting to feel the economic effects of the word of God prevailing mightily in their town. Because saving faith should show up on our bank statements somehow. The way affects the wallet. What we spend, how we spend. The silversmiths were feeling it. And the verses we read said that these men were especially wealthy because of silver shrines of Artemis that they made. Verse 24 said, Now Artemis was a prominent Greek goddess, goddess of fertility, also the patron goddess of hunting. She was identified with the Roman goddess Diana. Her temple was in Ephesus. Many people from the wider world would come to Ephesus to visit her temple, especially the uh, annual festivals that were held in her honor. And for the right price, you could leave Ephesus with a little silver replica of this temple. 
or with a little silver shrine that you can put in your home and continue to offer sacrifices and prayers to Artemis, or uh, a little silver replica of an image of Artemis herself. And those who lived in Ephesus, of course, also would purchase this idolatry merchandise to bring the blessing of Artemis into their home and wherever they went. This was big business. The Ephesian silversmiths gained considerable wealth by this. And then the nerve of this Paul guy, he's killing our sales. And Demetrius specifically singles out Paul in a complaint in verse 26. He said, you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people saying that gods made with hands are not gods. Now Demetrius and, and none of his friends are going to stop and say, hey, you know, maybe Paul has a point. Maybe these silver things we're making are not really divine. They don't say that. Because who's got time to think about what's true about God when our money's in danger? Right? I mean, our our economy might be in a recession. Who can really focus on the truth about God at a time like this? Pie in the sky kind of stuff. There are many in our country today. Maybe there's someone in this room today who's caught in the same snare Demetrius was in. That his preoccupation with his worldly wealth being endangered was smothering any real concern that he had for the truth and glory of God and his standing before this God. I think the real God of these men was not so much Artemis as it was their income. And we could think of it like this, that Artemis was just the surface idol, and their commitment to her grew out of a deeper heart idol, money. And the way of God is a danger to those who serve almighty dollar. Those who live for Christ and those who live for earthly riches are walking in opposite directions, and sometimes they collide. Jesus said, no servant can serve two masters. He will either hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot, that's the language of impossibility, you cannot serve God and money. You will be devoted to one or the other, says Jesus. You'll end up despising the other. He said, because devotion to the one is a danger to devotion to the other. Now, often the way gets in the way of worldly wealth. It happened here in Ephesus. It happened in Philippi back in chapter 16. And tragically, there are some today who try to use the way of Christ like the pagan silversmiths used the cult of Artemis. They imagine that the true religion is a means of material gain. There are some today who would have told Demetrius in Acts 19, Sir, you do not need to be disturbed about the way. Your wealth is not in danger. Come to Christ and he will cause your worldly wealth to abound. 
That's not the way. What the Bible says, actually, is the desire to be rich and the love of money are actually sins to repent of in coming to Christ, not proper motivations for coming to Him. He doesn't promise to give us those things. Actually, the treasure He promises to give us is greater. The treasure Jesus died to purchase for us is far greater than silver or gold. God in His glory Enjoying Him now and forever, sharing in His kingdom, sharing in His holiness, forgiveness, is better. Now, I think we're supposed to view the actions of these craftsmen in Ephesus, especially in light of some other people in town who saw that what Jesus really gives is better. The believers right before these verses that we looked at last week. All right, so think about this. We, we have seen today the silversmiths who make silver shrines of Artemis. They're all concerned about their wealth. And that's just a few verses after we saw Christians in Ephesus showing total disregard for how much silver following Christ actually might cost them. Look at verse 19. A number of believers who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all repenting of their old roots in sorcery. And they counted the value of them, and it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. Gone, went up in smoke. And that scene is fresh in our minds. And then we come to these silversmiths, who, by contrast, are willing to whip up the whole city into a riot in order to keep their silver. See, these two consecutive scenes... They're like foils for each other that, that help us to understand the truth that Jesus taught. That you cannot serve silver and the Savior. You can choose to follow Demetrius and follow Judas Iscariot and choose silver instead of the Savior. But if you do, then your end will be like his. But if you follow Jesus Christ, your end will be like his. You'll be raised in glory to eternal life, set free from all of the effects of sin, fitted for unhindered joy with God forever, ruling over a new heavens and a new earth where righteousness dwells, all because of his death for you. The treasure he gives is greater. Now we should say too, before we move from this point, that even if you are now following Christ, you do still need to hear and heed the warning that Jesus gave to his disciples. Be on your guard against all covetousness. Even as a saved person, your heart is not above those temptations. And you need to be prepared to be opposed for living like money does not matter most to you because that will sometimes endanger the ambitions of people around you. It might just not, not only just affect your bank account. You may need to make choices that magnify the worth of God that do not maximize the financial gain that could come to your family or your boss or your business partners or, or someone else somehow if, if you chose differently. 
Will you choose that way? Friends, don't, don't get scared off of the narrow way that leads to life just because it disturbs the world around you and endangers what they prize. Now, in the next verse, Demetrius' argument shifts. He moves past the financial dangers brought by the way, and he expresses concern over what else the way was endangering. Look at verse 27. There is danger, not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, bad repute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, and that she may even be deposed from her magnificence, her greatness, she whom all Asia and the world worship. Our trade may, may come into disrepute. Repute, that sounds like the word reputation. See, this way is not just a danger to our riches, it's a danger to our reputations. And on this point, Demetrius expands the alarm beyond just the silversmiths in town. And he says the reputation of the whole city is at stake here. The way is a danger to our city's big claim to fame, the great temple that we have in our midst. If what Paul keeps saying keeps spreading, this temple could be regarded as nothing. And remember now, all of Asia and all the wider world come to us here to worship. If her greatness is in danger of being brought down, then our special place in the world is too. So here's the next main point of our passage. The way is a danger to worldly greatness. The way is a danger to worldly greatness. Again, I think the people's commitment to the goddess Artemis might be thought of here as a surface idol rooted in a deeper commitment to a deeper heart idol that was the city's reputation in the world, their own greatness in their own eyes and in the eyes of others. And that's why the craftsmen cry out like they do in response to Demetrius' speech. They declare not only the, the greatness of Artemis, they declare also the greatness of Ephesus. Look at verse 28. When they heard this, they were enraged and were crying out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! Of us. The way was undermining the thing that, that made them feel important in the world. The thing that put them on the map. The thing that made them unique and distinguished above others. And that's why a city official, when he shows up to try and calm down the riding city, he's going to seek, first of all, to coddle the city's sense of self-importance rooted in this great temple. You can see that down in verse 35. When the town clerk had quieted the crowd, he said, Men of Artemis, who is there who does not know that the city of the Ephesians is the temple keeper or the guardian of the temple of the great Artemis and of the sacred stone that fell from the sky? Seeing then that these things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rash. So he says, hey, hey, calm down. Everybody, calm down because everyone knows, listen, everyone knows, this is indisputable fact that our city is the special keeper of this great temple and, and the special guardians of this sacred stone inside of it, the image that came down from heaven. So 
Though some suggest that, that there was uh, an image inside this temple that was part of a meteorite or something that fell down from heaven. Ancient pagan peoples would, would uh, use things like that in idol worship. He says, y'all calm down. Everyone knows you're really special and great. Now, to really understand the city's fear and pride here, you need to know more about this temple in Ephesus. And in many ways, it was unparalleled. It was four times larger than the Parthenon in Athens. There were 127 gigantic, uh, majestic pillars that held 60 feet up in the air, a white marble roof. It was considered, for good reason, one of the seven wonders of the world. And in fact, there's a famous ancient Greek poet who's famous for listing out the seven ancient wonders of the world. And when he does, he says that this temple was the most wonderful of the wonders. He wrote, I have set eyes on the wall of lofty Babylon and the statue of Zeus by the Alpheus and the hanging gardens of Babylon and the colossus of the sun and the huge labors of the high pyramids in Giza, and the vast tomb of Mausolus. But when I saw the house of Artemis in Ephesus, that mounted to the clouds, those other marvels lost their brilliancy, and I said, Lo, apart from Olympus, the sun never looked on anything so grand as this temple. And the Ephesians had incredible personal pride in this temple. Actually, when it was destroyed 300 years before Acts 19, Alexander the Great personally offered to pay to have it rebuilt. And the Ephesians refused that offer because they wanted to be the one themselves to build it at their own expense. And so they did. And it was bigger and greater than it had been before, than any had been before. Again, and many people from the wider world flocked to Ephesus to see this, their temple. And Paul is trying to take this away from us. What he's saying about Jesus is a threat to dethrone Artemis. And if that happens, how would we be any different from anyone else in the world? How would we be the envy of anyone else? Exactly. Verse 28 said that, that they were enraged when they considered this danger to their worldly greatness. They, they started shouting, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And then things escalate really quickly. Look at verse 29. The city was filled with the confusion. And they rushed together into the theater, dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians who were Paul's companions in travel. So the other people in the city, they don't know exactly what's going on. But they can sure get behind the slogan that these silversmiths are, are yelling. So they join the mob, and they all rush together to the, the theater, the great public gathering place. It was cut into a mountain outside of town. It could seat 25,000 people. And then some citizens who, who knew enough about the source of this outrage, they grab Paul's co-workers, two of them, and drag them to the theater. They're probably hoping to convene, convene some kind of emergency town meeting so they can condemn these guys in the heat of the moment. Now, I'm sure that, that they wanted Paul. Remember, Demetrius singled him out earlier, but they couldn't find him, so they settled for his 
companions. But Paul nearly went to the theater himself. He had to be held back from this. Look at verse 30. When Paul wished to go in among the crowd, the disciples would not let him go. And it wasn't just the other Christians in town who were having to hold Paul back. Look at verse 31. Even some of the Asiarchs, who were friends of his, sent to him and were urging him not to venture into the theater. The Asiarchs were were people who were part of a governing board of of the broader region, the, the Roman province of Asia that Ephesus was in. And they were friends of Paul somehow. They'd become that during Paul's three-year ministry in Ephesus. And they said, Paul, don't go. I'm sure Paul wanted to go to proclaim Christ. He's thinking, wow, look at this. The whole city is gathered. And the way that I preach is on their mind. Let me go give it to them. Paul, they won't listen. You'll just be handing yourself over to be killed. This is not an effective door for ministry. They won't listen to anyone right now. And Paul's friends will be proved right. Look down at verse 32. Some cried out one thing, some another, for the assembly was in confusion, and most of them did not know why they had come together. Uh, This verse is poking fun at how thoughtless and rash The world can be in defense of its values. Some people are yelling one thing. Others are yelling other things. And this verse said the majority of the people there did not know why they were there yelling. Can you see that? Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Why are we yelling? I don't know. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Get those guys. Why are we angry at those guys? I'm not sure. Kill them. They're just swept up in the hysteria. Now, eventually, a Jewish man is pushed out before the crowd. Verse 33. Some of the crowd prompted Alexander, whom the Jews put forward. And Alexander, motioning with his hand, wanted to make a defense to the crowd. So the Jews send this guy forward, not to defend Paul, but, but probably to throw Paul under the bus and to make sure that, that they didn't get run over with him. To say, hey, listen, Paul's a Jew, but, but us other Jews in town, we're not with him. We don't belong to the way, so don't hurt us. But he never got a hearing. Verse 34 says, when they recognized that he was a Jew, for about two hours, they all cried out with one voice, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Two hours. If I chanted, great is the Artemis of the Ephesians, for 15 seconds, you all would be very uncomfortable and think, when is, when is he going to stop? The crowd knew when they saw this man was Jewish. Whatever he's going to say, he's not going to speak in defense of the greatness of the goddess of Artemis. So they drowned him out, wouldn't let him speak, and just kept yelling with one voice, Uh, Unity is not always a good thing, is it? Depends on what you're united around. They keep yelling with one voice for two hours. The same refrain that the craftsmen started yelling. In verse 28, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Now sadly, this is the way people often try to protect what they prize. When when other ideas threaten what they value or, or their idols in the world. 
If we can just say something with enough passion, enough outrage, enough repetition, and enough numbers on our side, then we can win the day without needing to win an argument. We're not going to try and reasonably argue that gods made with hands are real gods. We're just going to chant in unison about how great Artemis is and drown out the dissenters and make people afraid of questioning our importance in the world. No room for reasonable discussion and thoughtful disagreement. Just angry insistence. No, 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 no. Great, are we? Now, you, you should be careful not to get caught up in these same tactics of the world. Proverbs warns, be careful of an angry man because you might become like him. The truth is on our side. The living God is with us on the way. So we should always be willing to engage with people thoughtfully and showing honor. Uh, there are too many Christians I see today who try to defend the way with the spirit of the Ephesian mob, basically. I remember what we saw Paul doing earlier in this town in Ephesus in verses 8 and 9 of chapter 19. He's reasoning and persuading daily in the city about the gospel. The city didn't respond in kind. It's just easier. It's just easier to plug your ears and get mad about something than to actually have ears that are willing to listen and a mind that's willing to think. It's especially easier to do that than it is to be willing to give up your pride and to repent of, of trying to establish and guard worldly greatness. Because to do that, you have to see the ultimate vanity of it. And to see that you have to see the surpassing greatness of Jesus to come to that point. Just like we sing, that it is, it is only when I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, that's when I can count my richest gain as loss and pour contempt on all my pride. See, as the word of God spread in Ephesus in Asia, the end of verse 17 told us that the name of Jesus was extolled because of what people were hearing about him. And I bring that up because in verse 17, this word extolled is actually translated from the same root as several other words that we've seen in our passage, the words great and magnificence. So I think we're supposed to, to bring those all together and see the connections. And if we wanted to bring out those connections, we could translate these phrases as the name of Jesus was becoming great. And so the temple of the great Artemis was in danger. Her greatness was in danger of being brought down. And so the city cried out, great is she. Great are we. This is a battle of greatness. The rising acknowledgement of the greatness of Jesus endangered the Ephesians' sense of special importance in the wider world, especially their sense of importance above the wider world. 
And that, that's the real rub. See, the gospel is the great equalizer of men. It tells us that all have sinned. Rich, poor, Jew, Gentile, blue-collar, white-collar, urban center, backwoods, all have fallen short of the glory of God. And they stand guilty and condemned before Him. So the gospel message flattens all men where no one is standing head and shoulders above the rest with their nose in the air. And because the gospel is the great equalizer of men, it is the great enemy of human pride because pride comes from considering yourself more or better than someone else in some way, or at least hoping that that would be the case. And then the saving message of the way continues to assault human pride because it says we're saved by God's grace alone, received through faith alone, in Christ alone, and all of it's for the glory of the greatness of God alone. Sinners cannot be saved by any of their own works. And the scripture says one reason that's the case is so that no one would boast before God. And 1 Corinthians 1 teaches that not many of the world's great ones are called to be saved so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. But rather, God made His Son to become for us our wisdom and our righteousness and our sanctification and our redemption so that the one who boasts would boast in the Lord. So those who are on the way then, God puts a new song in their heart. A song that says, not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name be glory, Psalm 115. And it says, Galatians 6, far be it from me, but to boast except in the cross of my Lord Jesus Christ. The way involves turning from sinfully seeking the glory that only God deserves and finding our joy in that. As Isaac Watts put it in one of his hymns, he said, Now for the love I bear his name. In what was my gain, I count but loss. My former pride, I call my shame. And I nail my glory to his cross. Have you done that? In Christian, are you still today living with that heart? Well, the final part of this chapter of Scripture, in it the Spirit teaches us that the real danger in Ephesus was not actually the way, but how the city was responding to it. And this is the last main point of our passage. The way is no true danger to the world. The way is no true danger to the world. Look again at verse 35 with me. And now we'll read the rest of what the town clerk said to the crowd after he stroked their ego. Follow along, starting in verse 35. When the town clerk had quieted the crowd, he said, Men of Ephesus, who is there who does not know that the city of the Ephesians is temple keeper of the great Artemis? And of the sacred stone that fell from the sky. Seeing that these things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rash. For you have brought these men here who are neither sacrilegious, literally they're not temple robbers, nor blasphemers of our goddess, 
Okay, they haven't stormed the temple. They're not organizing crowds to chant things against Artemis. Verse 38, If therefore Demetrius and the craftsmen with him have a complaint against anyone, the courts are open. There are proconsuls, the judges of those city courts. Let them bring charges against one another. And if you seek anything further, it shall be settled in the regular assembly. Uh, the, the lawful democratic meeting that, that met in that big theater. Verse 40, for we really are in danger. There's that key word of the passage again. We really are in danger of being charged with rioting today since there's no cause that we can give to justify this commotion. And when he said these things, he dismissed the assembly. See, in the beginning of the passage, someone says that the way is a danger. It's a danger to our wealth. It's a danger to the city's greatness. But in the end, the real danger to the city was in how they were reacting to the preaching of the gospel. Rioting without justification. That, that was the real danger. The town clerk knew we could be in big trouble for rioting. I mean, the Roman government is giving us freedom to exercise our own government according to our own democratic Greek ideals here in this city. Well, if, this, if, if, if we lose it and we riot, we could be penalized. Our civic freedoms could be taken away. Now, actually, this speech, then, of the Ephesian town clerk is an important piece of the apologetics of the book of Acts. It shows that if the gospel is, is coming through and it's turning the world upside down and it's causing unrest in cities and it's upsetting societies, it's not the fault of the gospel itself. The clerk said, if someone can be charged with wrongdoing this day, it's us. See, accusations were swirling around in Paul's day when, when Luke wrote this book, inspired by the Holy Spirit. And there are similar accusations made today. That Christianity is, is the enemy of peace and law and order and stability and human flourishing. And part of the point of this passage is the Holy Spirit saying, that's not true. It's the world's rash and proud rejection of Christ that is the enemy of the common good. The book of Acts argues against these early false charges that the spread of the gospel was a troublemaking force for, for sedition and other things. The innocence of the way is here proved. The gospel is above reproach. Hear it from the mouth of an unbelieving town clerk. The way is no true danger to the world, even though it does at times endanger worldly wealth and greatness. Well, how do those things fit together? They fit because living for worldly wealth and greatness is not actually good for the world. That itself is a danger to the world. So the way of God only endangers that which is dangerous to people, even if they prize it. And pride comes before the fall. The desire to be rich plunges people into ruin and destruction. What is supremely good for the world is the unrivaled glory of Jesus, who is good and does good to all who are His. 
Now there's one other truth I want you to see in this chapter. So think with me, what did God work through to protect the believers from unjust harm? Here at the end of of chapter 19. The orderly structures of decent human government. Right? If Demetrius, verse 38, if Demetrius has a complaint, he's not free to just go whack the Christian that he's mad at. He can bring a legal charge against them in court and argue his case to the proconsul and try and say that Paul has broken some established law. And if he wants to bring a more serious public charge, then he can be, bring that to a lawful assembly of the town council where the case will be settled according to proper procedures. So we see here the common grace of God working through decent human government. Good government, even if it's not godly government that acknowledges Christ, is still a great temporal blessing to humanity and to the church and to the spread of the gospel. Now we've seen in Acts that the gospel spreads even in the face of violent persecution, even in the face of persecution that's sponsored by evil human government. But we see also in Acts that the gospel is at times free to spread because God pours out his restraining grace on humanity through decent human government, which holds back unjust, rash, violent hostility to the way. God can work through government in his common grace to enforce the truth that Christianity is no true danger to the world. See, the Apostle Paul later left Timothy in Ephesus, and he wrote to Timothy a letter, 1 Timothy, and in that letter he said, y'all need to pray for kings and those who are in high places so that we Christians can live peaceful and quiet lives. And the Christians in Ephesus would have known exactly why Paul was asking for that prayer, because they had seen it firsthand on the day of this riot, the blessing that comes when God gives the gift in his common grace to humanity of decent human government. And we are supposed to pray to that same end today. We pray for it because it's something only we can have as a good gift from God. When humans are are acting in ways that are orderly and promote peace and stability, even for the church, this is the gift of God who works even through unbelievers at times to do good to his people and care for everything that he's made. And we should pray to this same end also for our brothers and sisters around the world. There are many nations on earth today, as was true then, when two Christians would not have survived a riot like happened in Acts 19. Now Jesus, of course, warned us to expect things like that in the world too. And ultimately, even as we pray for this, like we're commanded by God, like Matt led us earlier in the service, we are called ultimately to hope in and look forward to and to pray for the coming day when all the kingdoms of the world become the kingdom of our God and of His Christ, and He reigns forever. We must never lose sight of that as we walk on the way in this world. Now I want to use my last words in this sermon to appeal to you that if you are still following the course of this world, I appeal to you to repent of the ways that you've lived ignoring and defying God and come walk with God on the way of His salvation. 
And if you think I am not worthy to walk with God on the way of his salvation, then your head's actually in the right place, halfway. You're not worthy of it because of all your sins. But I'll tell you this too, God is worthy to have you on his way of salvation. And God will get glory from showing how great his grace is to save sinners like you and like me. God would have you on this new and living way that he has opened through Christ. And you will be translated onto it if you will only believe on Christ and follow him. And then God will tune your heart to want to boast in him now and forever with all the saints and all the angels and everything that God has made. God, I pray that you would tune all of our hearts to do that more so, to boast in you. God, I pray that you would forgive us for when we boast not in you. We know that nothing we have we did not receive from you. Why would we boast as if we did not receive it? God, I pray that you would help us to to put away uh, ungodly pursuits of worldly wealth and worldly greatness and help us only to pursue Uh, those kinds of things for the sake of the greater glory of Jesus. God, give us much wisdom to do this. Thank you for speaking to us in your word today. Help us to respond, not as hearers only, but as doers. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.